Tired of the old spins? Welcome to the Anders of John Show, your refuge from mainstream media spin. Here we dissect fake news and expose the real stories. Don't just listen, engage. Sign up for our newsletter right now. Click the link in the description. Together we can change the way we consume news, challenge the narrative, and seek the truth. The Anders of John Show, because the truth matters. Now let's get into today's topic. Let's let's just start with basic strategic objectives. Um, Let's look at the Russian strategic objectives first. Uh, first and foremost, Russia is seeking to um, get Europe and the United States to buy into the notion of a negotiated uh, new European security framework. It's something that Russia put on the table prior to uh, invading Ukraine. Um, if people remember back to December 17th, I believe, of last year, Russia submitted two draft treaties, one to NATO, one to the United States, uh, which articulated uh, Russia's stance on what um, its vision of a new European security framework could look like. Uh, they invited the West to read it and have a serious discussion about it, and they were ignored. Um, then Russia invaded Ukraine, and Russia has two objectives. One is the demilitarization of Ukraine. The other is the denazification of Ukraine. Um, demilitarization means the elimination of all NATO influence on the Ukrainian military. Uh, and denazification means just that, getting rid of everything that Russia um, considers to be related to the ultra-nationalistic ideology of Stepan Bandera and the white supremacist um, manifestations of that. Now, these are words that I'm not using. I mean, people go, well, Ritter, yeah, you're very good at Kremlin talking points. I'd advise people to go back and actually read the amendments put by uh, the United States House of Representative on Department of Defense uh, appropriations legislation from 2015 up until just this year. Um, they continuously forbid funds, U.S. taxpayer funds, being used to train the Azov Battalion, which is listed by the U.S. Congress as a white supremacist neo-Nazi organization. So anybody who wants to pretend that there isn't a Nazi problem in uh, in Ukraine Simply, I refer you to Congress and its own legislation. The Russians believe that this is a big problem, and um, they want to eradicate it. Now, why did I bring this up? Because Russia hasn't shifted gears at all. <laughs> Russia is still saying, we want a European security framework out of this, and we are adhering to our original objectives. Russia hasn't altered course at all. Ukraine, on the other hand, um, is saying that Victory can only be achieved when Russia is evicted from all territory, including Crimea. I would say that Russia is closer to achieving its objectives than Ukraine is to achieving its objectives, uh, which tells me Russia has the momentum, Russia has the initiative, and Russia has realistic objectives that can be attained. Um, Ukraine doesn't. I mean, there's just literally no one on this planet besides maybe. Um, I don't even think the Ukrainians believe it, that they're going to recapture uh, the Donbass, that they're going to recapture Kherson, Zaporizhia, that they're going to recapture Crimea. Uh, this is fantasy. So you have one side that's um, that their objectives are fantasy-based. You have another side whose objectives are, while difficult to achieve, are very realistic. Um, so I'll go with the realistic side over the fantasy side as to who I think is going to prevail. Then we take a look at capabilities. For certain, Ukraine had a good September. There's no one that's going to debate that issue whatsoever. Uh, but at what cost? And what I mean by that 
is in order to achieve this good September, Ukraine had to absorb um, billions, tens of billions of dollars worth of NATO equipment. It took months to do this. It took months to get people trained on this, to bring the equipment in, to match the equipment with the people, organize it, and bring it to the battlefield. And then in one month, Ukraine pretty much burned through everything. The casualties they've suffered have been horrific. They've lost the equipment. They've lost most of the manpower. Um, and they're down to a position now where they're begging the West to help them reconstitute this capability. Russia started September with pretty much the same force structure that it brought in when it invaded in, in, in February. Uh, and what had happened is um, Russia pretty much had insufficient resources to the task they had set forth for themselves. Uh, they had many parts of the defensive line that were stretched thin. And the Ukrainians were able to exploit this. And the Russians wisely, I believe, uh, traded territory for lives. Uh, the Russians aren't in the business of just throwing away Russian lives. And so they weren't going to hold on to a strong point and defend it to the last man. Uh, they were more than happy to withdraw, trade territory, save lives, consolidate their defensive positions, all the while inflicting what should have been prohibitive casualties on the Ukrainians, tens of thousands of, of losses. Um, meanwhile, while Russia is consolidating their lines, they're reinforcing. Vladimir Putin ordered the partial mobilization. 300,000 uh, reservists have been called up. 87,000 of them are currently deployed into the Special Military Operations Zone. The rest are finalizing their organization into fresh combat units, which will give the Russians tremendous flexibility and operational capacity. Demilitarization refers to the elimination of all NATO influence on Ukraine's military, while democrification is about getting rid of ultra-nationalistic ideologies and white supremacist manifestations. Now, some might say that I'm parroting Kremlin talking points, but the truth is, even the United States House of Representatives has recognized the issue with the Azov Battalion, a white supremacist neo-Nazi organization, in their own legislation. So, where does this leave us? Russia's objectives, while difficult, are realistic. On the other hand, Ukraine's goals of evicting Russia from all of its territory, including Crimea, are closer to fantasy. In this situation, Russia has the momentum, the initiative, and the attainable goals. Let's take a look at the capabilities of both sides. Ukraine had a good September thanks to tens of billions of dollars worth of NATO equipment, but they burned through it all, suffered heavy casualties, and lost most of their manpower. Now they're begging the West to help them reconstitute their capability. Meanwhile, Russia started September with the same force structure as when they invaded in February. They traded territory for lives, consolidated their defensive positions, and inflicted significant casualties on the Ukrainians. They've even called up 300,000 reservists, with 87,000 already deployed. As Ukraine's combat capability shrinks, Russia's increases. The West, it seems, made a mistake in misinterpreting Russia's soft approach to the conflict, as they have now taken the gloves off and shown that they can close down Ukraine as a modern nation-state anytime they want to. So, what does this all mean? We have a situation where one side has realistic objectives and the means to achieve them, while the other side clings to fantasy. This is a stark reminder that sometimes, the world isn't black and white, and that we must take a step back and look at the broader picture. In closing, the situation in Ukraine is far more complex than it appears on the surface. While it's easy to vilify one side and support the other, we must remember to stay informed and look at the situation objectively. The consequences of this conflict extend beyond Ukraine. 
Ukraine's borders and its resolution will have far-reaching implications for the global political landscape. As we continue to analyze the situation in Ukraine, it's important to consider the role of external forces like NATO and the United States in shaping the outcome of this conflict. The Western powers have been actively supporting Ukraine, providing them with much-needed equipment and training. However, this assistance may not be enough to tip the scales in Ukraine's favor, especially considering Russia's overwhelming firepower and clear objectives. We must also examine the long-term consequences of this conflict on the international stage. Ukraine's struggle for sovereignty has reignited tensions between Russia and the West, tensions that have been simmering since the end of the Cold War. With both sides increasing their military presence in the region, there is a growing risk of escalation and a potential return to a new Cold War-like standoff. In this high-stakes game of international diplomacy, one wrong move could set off a chain reaction that could have devastating consequences for everyone involved. This is a sobering reminder of the delicate balance that must be maintained to prevent a full-scale conflict from breaking out, which could have far-reaching implications, not only for Europe but also for the entire world. At this point, it's critical for leaders on both sides of the conflict to approach the situation with a level head and a commitment to diplomacy. The key to a peaceful resolution lies in finding common ground and seeking a mutually beneficial outcome for all parties involved. So, what can be done to resolve this crisis? First and foremost, there must be a renewed commitment to diplomacy and dialogue. Both Russia and Ukraine need to engage in meaningful negotiations to reach a peaceful settlement that addresses the concerns of both sides. The international community, particularly the United States and NATO, must act as mediators and facilitators in this process. Second, there must be a focus on rebuilding trust and fostering cooperation between Russia and the West. This may seem like a tall order given the current state of affairs, but it's essential for ensuring long-term stability in the region. The world has come a long way since the days of the Cold War, and no one wants to see a return to the tense, high-stakes standoffs of the past. Lastly, the international community must work together to address the root causes of the conflict, including the rise of ultra-nationalism and white supremacist ideologies. This will require a coordinated effort to combat extremism, promote tolerance, and encourage democratic values both within and outside of Ukraine. The situation in Ukraine is a complex and multifaceted issue that cannot be resolved through force alone. Diplomacy, dialogue, and cooperation must be at the forefront of any efforts to bring about a peaceful resolution to this conflict. As citizens of the world, we must remain informed, engaged, and committed to fostering a more just, peaceful, and stable global community. Before I answer that, you need to understand that I'm an American citizen, not a member of the government. I'm sitting thousands of miles away from the actual battlefield, and I am a prisoner to the data that I, that's available to me. And none of it's secret. It's all data that everybody here has. I analyze the data using, drawing upon my experience as a military professional, but I don't pretend to have a crystal ball to be the perfect forecaster. So I just want to say that up front that um, you need to take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. There's no way Russia should lose this war. I don't mean that as, uh, as some sort of um, gung-ho-ness. First of all, war is horrible. I think we all have to understand that what we're talking about here is people killing people, but in the, this case, it's Russians killing Russians. All right, so this isn't something to cheer about uh, because this war should never have happened, but it's happened. And unfortunately, it has to come to an end. And I believe that there's no reason for Russia to lose this war from a military standpoint. So the, the, the question isn't what I think 
is going to happen. The question is, what does the Russian government want to happen? That's the fundamental question. How this war ends is solely up to the Russian government. Do they want this war to end in a decisive military victory? They have the ability to do this. Uh, but why aren't they? Do they want this war to end in a stalemate? That could happen. Uh, if the government doesn't allow the military to use all of its advantages. Um, can Russia lose this war? Yes. Russia can lose this war because if the military is not given all of the political support necessary, then the military will lose because war is an extension of politics by other means. The military victory is assured. The political victory is not assured. So now you ask me where you're going to go with this. I think that the Russian government needs to make a decision on how they want this war to end. I don't know what that decision is going to be. So to me, the options are either win this war or have a stalemate. And a stalemate isn't a solution. A stalemate just means that this problem continues over and over and over again. Um, so I'm hoping that the Russian government decides to end this war by winning this war. And I'll say this, if Russia wants to win this war, there's no reason why this war wouldn't be over by the end of summer, early fall. I personally believe that Russia has put together a, the, the military potential to defeat Ukraine militarily by the end of this summer, early fall. Well, I think it's safe to say that we are looking at the end of the unipolar world. It's not about a forecast, it's happening right now. Uh, the United States' uh, position as the global hegemon is collapsing. Um, so you say, what kind of unions will we see? We'll, we already see a, a, a certain union taking place. Uh, BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, expanding to other nations, including Argentina, uh, Iran, uh, Egypt, other, Saudi Arabia. So we're seeing a union already developing of people who are coming up with a common economic vision of how they want to operate in the world today. So that's one union that we're seeing. The problem now is what happens to the United States, NATO, Japan, South Korea, Australia, all the nations that are in the American orbit right now. Um, are they going to form their own counter union? And then we have a world that's in a bipolar conflict that resembles the Cold War. Of, uh, of the past, and that would be a very bad thing. Or are they going to find a way to work with BRICS to create true multipolarity? The way I think uh, the world was envisioned to look when the United Nations Charter was originally signed back at the end of World War II. Um, and that's the fundamental question. And the answer will be found two places. One in the United States. Will we be mature enough to understand that we are no longer sitting at the head of the table. We are going to be relegated to be like everybody else at the table, equals instead of the superior. Um, that's a very difficult question because Americans aren't used to being equal. We're used to being number one. So that's tough. Two, will Russia and China put a place at the table for America? Because frankly speaking, We've done a lot to anger you. You have a lot of reasons to be mad at us. And so it's not 
in your natural inclination to say, okay, we'll forget everything you've done, sit down at the table. But if you don't do that, then we get that bipolar world and we go back to Cold War conflict. So we need America to learn how to be equal, and we need Russia and China to have forgiveness. And then we can maybe get this multipolarity. I believe that the Russian government needs to make a decision on how they want this war to end. A stalemate is not a solution. It merely prolongs the problem, leading to a continuous cycle of conflict. Personally, I think that Russia has the military potential to defeat Ukraine by the end of summer or early fall. But the question remains, will they? Moving on to the bigger picture, we are witnessing the end of the era of a single global hegemon as the United States dominant position weakens. The emergence of the the BRICS Union, consisting of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa and expanding to other nations, signifies a shift towards a more multipolar world. But what does this mean for the United States and its allies, including NATO, Japan, South Korea and Australia? Will they form a counter-union and return to a bipolar world akin to the Cold War? Or will they find a way to work with the BRICS nations to create a truly multipolar world? The answer to this question lies in two places. First, the United States must come to terms with its new status as an equal player rather than a superior one. This is a difficult pill to swallow for a nation accustomed to being number one. Second, Russia and China must be willing to put a place at the table for America. This will require forgiveness, considering the tense history between these nations. In conclusion, we are at a crossroads in global politics. If we want to prevent a new Cold War and establish a multipolar world, the United States must learn how to be equal, and Russia and China must find it in their hearts to forgive. Will these nations rise to the occasion and work together for a more balanced, peaceful world? As we dive deeper into this complex geopolitical landscape, it's essential to consider the various factors at play. The world is rapidly changing and old paradigms are being challenged. We must recognize that the power dynamics are shifting and clinging to outdated notions of global dominance can only lead to further instability and conflict. The key to navigating these turbulent times is open dialogue and cooperation. We must break free from the cycle of mistrust and animosity that has long characterized relations between major powers. Instead, we need to focus on fostering understanding and finding common ground to address the myriad challenges that face humanity in the 21st century. These challenges include climate change, poverty, terrorism and pandemics, which transcend national borders and require a united effort from all nations. To effectively tackle these issues, we must recognize that no single nation can dictate terms to the rest of the world. It's only through working together, acknowledging our shared vulnerabilities and respecting one another's sovereignty that we can hope to create lasting solutions. In the case of the Russian government and the ongoing war, it's essential to emphasize the importance of diplomacy and negotiation. While military might may be a tempting solution, history has shown us that the consequences of such actions can be devastating and long-lasting. Instead, all parties involved must be open to dialogue and seek peaceful resolutions to their disputes. Similarly, the United States and its allies must accept the reality of a multipolar world and be willing to engage in sincere and constructive dialogue with emerging powers. This means recognizing the legitimate interests of other nations and fostering a spirit of collaboration rather than competition. Ultimately, the world is at a critical juncture. The path we choose will have profound implications for generations to come. The stakes are high, but so are the potential rewards. By embracing a spirit of cooperation and mutual respect, we can create a world that is more just, equitable and secure for all. 
So, my friends, let us not dwell on past mistakes or cling to outdated notions of power and dominance. Instead, let us look forward with hope and determination, working together to build a brighter future for all humanity. We have the opportunity to shape a new world order, one characterized by peace, understanding, and shared prosperity. But it's up to us to seize that opportunity and make it a reality. In the words of the great Martin Luther King Jr., we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Let that sentiment guide our actions as we navigate the complex and ever-evolving geopolitical landscape of the 21st century. Click the video on screen to stay updated and fight the free people's movement. Click this video now to stay updated. Let's let's just start with basic strategic objectives. Um, let's look at the Russian strategic objectives first. Uh, first and foremost, Russia is seeking to um, get Europe and the United States to buy into the notion of a negotiated uh, new European security framework. It's something that Russia put on the table prior to uh, invading Ukraine. Um, if people remember back to December 17th, I believe, of last year, Russia submitted two draft treaties, one to NATO, one to the United States, uh, which articulated uh, Russia's stance on what um, its vision of a new European security framework could look like. Uh, they invited the West to read it and have a serious discussion about it, and they were ignored. Um, then Russia invaded Ukraine, and Russia has two objectives. One is the demilitarization of Ukraine. The other is the denazification of Ukraine. Um, demilitarization means the elimination of all NATO influence on the Ukrainian military, uh, and denazification means just that, getting rid of everything that Russia um, considers to be related to the ultra-nationalistic ideology of Stepan Bandera and the white supremacist um, manifestations of that. Now, these are words that I'm not using. I mean, people go, well, Ritter, yeah, you're very good at Kremlin talking points. I'd advise people to go back and actually read the amendments put by uh, the United States uh, House of Representatives on Department of Defense uh, appropriations legislation from 2015 up until just this year. Um, they continuously forbid funds, U.S. taxpayer funds, being used to train the Azov Battalion, which is listed by the U.S. Congress as a white supremacist neo-Nazi organization. So anybody who wants to pretend that there isn't a Nazi problem in, uh, in Ukraine, simply I refer you to Congress and its own legislation. The Russians believe that this is a big problem, and um, they want it eradicated. Now, why did I bring this up? Because Russia hasn't shifted gears at all. I mean, Russia is still saying we want a European security framework out of this, and we are adhering to our original objectives. Russia hasn't altered course at all. Ukraine, on the other hand, um, is saying that victory can only be achieved when Russia is evicted from all territory, including Crimea. I would say that Russia is closer to achieving its objectives than Ukraine is to achieving its objectives, uh, which tells me Russia has the momentum, Russia has the initiative, and Russia has realistic objectives that can be attained. Um, Ukraine doesn't. I mean, there's just literally no one on this planet besides maybe, um, I don't even think the Ukrainians believe it, that they're going to recapture uh, the Donbass, that they're going to recapture Kherson, Zaporizhia, that they're going to recapture Crimea. Uh, this is fantasy. So you have one side that's um, that their objectives are fantasy-based. You have another side whose objectives are 
while difficult to achieve, are very realistic. 